Wayabo, wayabo, wayabo. I'm Jack Lattimore, and you're listening to Take It Black, the very first episode. What better way to kick off an episode called Take It Black than to take a look at January 26? If you've heard the trailer, you'd know my co-host is Ray Johnson. Right here we are. Here we are. Look at us. Who would have thought? No, thanks for having me, Jack, and thanks for tuning in, listeners. I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast, and it's actually really nice to be able to have a chat about Jan 26, which is always a difficult time of year. And how have you found it in the lead-up? It's been a bit quieter this year uh, compared to previous years. I think, obviously, the the tragedy with the bushfires has been at the forefront of everyone's mind. So, you know, the the media that normally turn their attention to Jan 26 and really drill down on us all uh, have kind of been distracted elsewhere. But there still has been the, the barrage of requests from white media for us to really put ourselves out there and on the line and kind of rehash our trauma for their benefit. Well, I don't think that will ever go away. I'm glad you brought that up because our feature interview later in the show is going to be with the writer Celeste Little. And uh, we I got together with her down in South Melbourne for a bit of a chat and that's exactly what we talked about, the demands placed on writers, activists advocates, allies in the lead up to January 26 and the toll that it takes. Yeah. I think people don't realise what they're asking of us. It's traumatic, right? Yeah, it really is. And for them, they're just doing the right thing. They're looking and they're saying, hey, Jan 26, we should have an Indigenous perspective on this. Let's bring on an Indigenous writer. We'll give them four days notice and, you know, make them put everything out there and then deal with the backlash on social media as well. Well, they're trying to be Good allies, yeah. which is another topic we're going to discuss in the show. Um, but, yeah, they don't understand the, the weight of providing that platform year in, year out, year out with us, do they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a big commitment this January 26, you and I. Oh, yeah. What we are we do. going to be doing? Uh, we're going to be hosting the vigil on Saturday night, so on Jan 25th. Uh, it's a, a ceremony about you know, the, the day before Jan 26, essentially, the, the day before the beginning of the end. So it's an event uh, that's part of Sydney Festival and we'll be hosting a live cross to that event. It's, it's going to be pretty special, I think. It's my first one. Oh, very I've never nice. Been. I've never been. I've been to Sydney rallies in the past. Yep. I actually was a kid in the Long March in 1988. Yeah. Went back to the Empress Hotel in Redfern and hung out with all of the uh, black leaders and coordinators of that wow. event. Uh, but yeah, my first Yarbin festival. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. Oh, you'll love Yarbin. I go to Yarbin every year and there's just such awesome you know, market stalls with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander owned businesses that you can support. There's always really good live music. Dan Sultan's playing this year, which is going to be great. Uh, and they've got the Corroboree Kuro- ground as well. So dancing. Yeah, the- dancers from, from all over the country. So you really get to see the diversity of culture and that celebration of it. I The thing that I always love is that Every time you get there after the march, there'll be the smoking ceremony and then the weather will always change, yeah. no matter what. So you know, if it's you know, raining a little bit in the morning, smoking ceremony will happen and then bang, 
blue skies for the rest of the day. So oh, you will need some sunscreen while yeah. you're there because it gets real hot in the sun. Well, I'm turning up later on the Sunday. Nice. Um, yeah, so we've got a big day here at uh, NITV headquarters. Yeah, I'm going to be here in the evening going over all the news of the day. Oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, in, in the morning uh, we've got Nat and Mark Fennell are going to be taking a look around at all the events that are happening all over the country and then in the evening I'll be coming in and I'm looking forward to being able to see the numbers that are showing up to these marches. Yeah, hopefully... Uh, they're just more and more every year, which is amazing. They that's, are. I hope... Uh, Mainstream media reports the numbers accurately. That's a Wouldn't that be a nice change? <laughs> <laughs> That's I remember being there last year looking around going, there's got to be 100,000 people here. Like, this is enormous. And then it's like, yeah, like 1,000 people showed up in Sydney. I'm like, oh, come on. Every time. <laughs> Every single time. And, of course, we've got the sunrise ceremony. Uh, that's really popular. It's hosted by JP and a co-host from Channel 10, I think. Yeah, and that's going to be simulcast on SBS and Channel 10 as well this year. Yeah, so we're really hitting the mainstream there. They so want to hear from us. They do want to hear from us. And it's nice that they're engaging with us in a respectful way as well. You know, it's on our terms what we get to show them. So it's good. Let's just hope they continue to listen throughout the rest of the year. Wouldn't that be lovely? That'd be nice. <laughs> now, that brings us to some of the things that I've been doing around the place. I went and had a chat. A chat, rather, and a chat uh, with Bo Spearham, who is a member of the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, War, and also uh, the host of 98.9 FM's Let's Talk program. So I caught up with Bo, who's a Gomorrah fellow, last week, uh, just to get an idea of what's planned up there this year. Yeah, well, in the morning of the last few years, we meet at Musgrave Park um, at the community hall at Jagger Hall for the flag raising, the raising of the Aboriginal flag. Um, that'll be at like eight o'clock. Um, and then from there, the people that are there that make it will make our way down then, um, to, um, to, uh, Queens Park where the, where the, the rally point of, um, invasion they will start. Um, this year it's a different location, uh, just because the last few years, um, We've, you know, we've just sort of grown out of each place that we went to. So we thought, oh, yeah, we'll pick sort of this central place. That's, you know, it, it's a big park and it's got an ironic name, you know, to have the rally at, you know, Queen's Park. So, and we're going to, yeah, start there, you know, and then from there, we're going to head back to Musgrave Park. Um, and then like every year when we march, we usually stop four or five times, uh, to speak to, the crowd, and then also it's just some cultural dancing. Like um, there's always you know, some mob that bring didgers and clap sticks and spears um, and boomerangs and stuff, and you know mob jump up and dance at different intersections. Um, you know, the last few years we've had flares as well. We usually light those, like yellow red flares, um, on the march as well, um, and then also back at, at the park, and then we get back to the park. Um, and yeah, there's a few more speeches, there's food, um, you know, there's live music and then, um, different family groups and, 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 um, uh, traditional dancers jump up and perform. Um, and then we have some more live music and sort of just chilling out for the rest of the day. Cause usually it's bloody hot here in Brisbane. So Bo says that the mob, uh, up there is going to head back to Musgrave Park 
after the march. Uh, the park is a significant spot for mob there in Brisbane, in Manjin. Uh, it's a location that is synonymous with the struggle for Aboriginal rights. Ray, are there any other locations around that provide that same sort of... Uh, significance for for mob well yeah in sydney the invasion day march up until last year it started at the block which everyone knows is a a major place for protest and community for aboriginal people in sydney uh and we always end up uh, at the yarbin festival as well but there are these marches happening all over the country now and it's really really nice to see that's uh we start in hyde park now because there's too many people to yep. gather at the block. There was literally too many people, which is incredible and, and such a good sign. Uh, but, yeah, there's one in Adelaide. You know, Darwin starts in Civic Park. You've got Melbourne. They're starting outside at Parliament House. Yep. Uh, you know, Perth, That's Hobart. a big one down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Townsville has one as well. And for the first time, Newcastle has yeah, one going this year as well. Yeah, that was that's uh, that's a first. So hopefully more people rock up to that. But yeah, this, the, the one in Brisbane, this will be the, the first year that the march has occurred without you know, Sam Watson at the forefront after his unfortunate passing last year. So yeah, it's a, it's a big one for the mob up there. Yeah, it'll be emotional up there. Uh, our co- Brisbane, our new Brisbane correspondent, Doug Smith, he's uh, up there, he's going to cover that story for us. So... It might be out by the time this podcast goes to air. Yeah, you might be able to you know, listen to this and go, hey, I want to read that story, I want to watch that story and be able to flick over and do it. That's right, that's right. Now, with the anniversary celebration of Cook 2020, 250 years since he was over here, uh, I asked Bo, who's a member of the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, um, what he thought, whether that reenactment, another reenactment, mind you, would contribute to even bigger crowds for the march and um, whether anything else was planned across the year. So these Cook 2020 celebrations, 250 years since Cook rocked up, but there's a whole bunch of exhibitions and events that are happening all over the country. Uh, I think one of the most significant ones actually was the IATSIS uh, pioneering the returning of artefacts and cultural items from museums overseas. Some actual repatriations from this was a really positive thing to see. But, of course, that was a small part of the funding, which also includes a very historically inaccurate circumnavigation of Australia because Cook never circumnavigated Australia. Uh, So I find it kind of amusing that that's a part of it. There's also major upgrades to Botany Bay's National Park Visitor Centre that's going in. There's going to be... tens of millions went into that. Yeah, big exhibition there as well. Uh, And they're putting in ferry wharves down at LARPA as a part of that too. Uh, National Library has held an exhibition down in Canberra for... The last year, it ended in September last year, I believe, and I actually hosted one of the panel discussions that they had down there with First Nations people from all over the Pacific. And hearing the differing perspectives of Cook was really confronting. Yeah. I expected everyone on that panel to have the same you know, kind of negative mm-hmm. viewpoint of Cook rocking up. You know, it, it was devastating. But there are places out there where his arrival is seen as a perfectly fine, good thing that, you know, they benefited from. And and hearing those viewpoints was 
very difficult as a as a moderator and yeah, as someone yeah. on that panel that felt the complete opposite. Yeah, it's the kind of differing opinion you usually hear from someone that's trying to be contrary and yep. controversial and you know make you upset. But it was heartfelt and it was genuine. So well, it'll be interesting to see if that reception is the same in Australia where the endeavour pulls into a, a number of ports. So I asked Bo about that and what he expects will be the uh, the kind of uh, reception that they get. I was sort of disgusted with the celebration, um, you know, in different sort of parts of Queensland, you know. Um, there's, well, there's sort of several towns in Queensland that are sort of named after him or sort of named after um, his voyage and, you know, the, like the date that he landed and stuff as well. And I know uh, community members, Blackfellas in particular, you know, want to rally um, in these points because every year, um, you know, um, like in Gladstone in 1770, I think in Cooktown and some other places, they actually celebrate, you know, Cook every year, regardless of, you know, this being 250 years. So I think with the added, you know, um, pressure of sort of this anniversary mob wanted this stuff regardless so yeah, they've been getting in contact with um with us as well saying that they want um support with energy that they want to do as well um so at the moment yeah we're just sort of keeping our ear to the ground to see what um the mob in new south wales um want to do as well um i know some of the some of the mob um down that way um, some of their families, you know, live around the south coast and, you know, affected by the fires. So, you know, hopefully their mob can, you know, recover well and, you know, they, they didn't um, damage too much. But, yeah, no, I think, um, you know, the mob up here um, are really keen to sort of show their, you know, to, to disrupt that celebration in whatever way that um, they can. So hopefully we can, you know, um, um, you know, but, you know, hopefully this can be sort of a teaching moment for history. Yeah. Um, you know, for non-Indigenous people. Take it black. One of the most popular articles published by NITV News Online is How to Be a Good Indigenous Ally. It was written by Summer May Finlay in mid-2018, but each year we give it a rerun around January 26, and our readers each time always engage enthusiastically with it. We see loads of shares and thousands of hearts. Yeah, well, that makes sense, right? Because as we heard from Bo, there's so many non-Indigenous mob who are fronting up in support of the marches and the demonstrations, who genuinely, genuinely want to uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with us, but they're still uncertain of how to do that properly. So, Ray, how do these good people become a good ally for Indigenous rights? Well, listeners can check out Summer's article on the NITV home site, but for this episode, we spoke to Claire Land. I think it's really inspiring the numbers that are growing around Invasion Day and it's it's a sign that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are gaining in moral authority, um, are winning this long-term um, cultural contest about um, the meaning of the 26th of January. It's not a day to, to celebrate um, unthinkingly and dance on the graves of Aboriginal people. It's a day to mourn um, all that flowed from um, colonisation. 
Um, so I think that it's great that many, many more non-Aboriginal people are just starting to get a little feeling that, you know, it's not quite right to just have a blinder that day and, and, and not think about anything else. That was Claire and she is the author of Decolonising Solidarity, a book first published in 2015 which stemmed from her PhD. The book is based on interviews that Claire did with Aboriginal people from the land rights and community controlled health movements in southeastern Australia and selected supporters. It's been so popular that the book is going to have a second edition published in 2020. Groups of people form around this book to read it together and then come up with ways to implement the methods and suggestions contained in it into their own contexts. Claire gave us three fundamental approaches to becoming a good ally. Firstly, you have to know your history. So seek to find out the history of the place where you live and work Um, because it's once you know in detail what has gone on here, what's happened to the traditional owners where you now live, that you will... um, gain a better understanding of what needs to happen. Um, What's the struggle for justice? Have there been any land returns in the area? And um, what the local agendas are. So that's the first thing. Second thing, and this is a ground rule given to me by Gary Foley when I was first um, inspired to become a supporter of Indigenous struggles, is don't do anything unless you've been asked to do it. And really that just means um, that Aboriginal people will know best how to advance their own struggle. And so it's for you to support that rather than coming with a whole lot of ideas of your own about strategy and um, what's best for Aboriginal people. Thirdly is knowing yourself. There's a kind of um, hunger and an interest sometimes by non-Aboriginal people to Um, appreciate Aboriginal culture and that's wonderful but um, possibly even more important is to know your own culture and realise that you're coming to this with your own culture. It's not just neutral, you've got your own culture and to know yourself and consider how racism might have shaped you and the way you think is challenging but important. so that you can come at this from a position of, let's say, cultural strength and um, non-white people, people of colour, people from ethnic backgrounds will have cultural strength generally and that's a real asset that a lot of white people don't, don't recognise that they bring their own culture to. Don't do anything unless you've been asked to do it. Sounds like my kind of advice, Ray. <laughs> Also, the importance of knowing your history continues to resonate. That was a huge component in last year's Voice Treaty Truth NAIDOC theme. Yeah, it was. And it obviously remains there in the always was, always will be theme this year too. That third component of self-awareness is critical. Knowing what perspectives and privilege you may be inadvertently applying to something Now, there are some common challenges for folks who wish to become supporters. Yeah, there's a challenge around knowing what to do. Um, A lot of newly inspired supporters will find out about the terrible injustices and not know where to start. 
and you know that that'll often be a first question what can I do and there are some resources that you can check out there's a website decolonizing solidarity that has 36 ideas of what you can do um, and that's a great place to start to realize that actions can be small um, that it's important to, to do something to essentially show whose side you're on and to to start with even small things like you know wearing a badge putting stickers on your car um, you know those sorts of things that help to set um, set new standards for um, who matters in this country and to give others the idea that um, that racism is not acceptable and that you know um, there are others out there who also care so that you can find each other it's important to to join with like-minded people so that you can journey together help each other learn and um, and hold each other accountable in terms of how you want to be supporters, um, whether you're being racist without knowing it, and just having people around you who can gently but strongly, you know, support you in your journey. And those can be non-Aboriginal people who are more experienced, um, or, or if you're lucky and in that circumstance, Aboriginal people might be um, might be happy to to alert you and let you know what's needed and, and how to do something to help. Thanks, Claire. And Ray, that's what Summer writes in her article too. There can be challenges to a person's sensibilities in the course of being a good ally. Listen to our voices, preference them, Summer writes, and don't go in gung-ho. Include us in every step of the way. Be okay with not being centred in every conversation or even being a part of every conversation. And that's a pretty big challenge to white privilege right there. And also understand that we're not all the same. We have different views on things. Yeah, and as both Claire and Summer point out, be there for the highs, like the solidarity in the marches on Sunday, but also for the lows. Being an ally is about the long haul. If you hear friends or family or even somebody you don't know being racist, pull them up. Be an ally even when it means feeling uncomfortable. Take it black. Well, as you just mentioned, and as we've heard from both Bo and Claire, there are some big rallies expected to take place on Sunday. But what is January 26 anyway? And what is January 26 in the year of 2020? Is Australia Day the same event as it was when the bicentenary tall ships came through the heads, or has the narrative shifted? As Briggs says, is the date changing? And what is it about the date that seemingly enthralls Prime Ministers and their governments? Ray, for answers, I went and had a bit of a yarn with Professor Marcia Langton last week and asked her if she thought Australia Day had evolved in a, in a positive direction in the 32 years since 1988. No, now it's so highly contested that if a local government refuses to celebrate Australia Day on January 26, the Minister for Home Affairs uh, withdraws the right for them to um, naturalise citizens and have naturalisation ceremonies. But they do it anyway. They just refuse anyway, which I think is a good thing. Mm. Um, So, no, I don't think we've advanced very far at all. I think uh, more and more Australians realise that it's a nonsense to be celebrating the establishment of a penal colony um, as our, you know, Mm. as our national day. So there's really no reason for January 26 
to be the designated day to celebrate Australia. No, and Australia Day has been held on numerous different days throughout history. Yeah, January 26 was only established as the national holiday with all states and territories back in 1994. So it's just completely unnecessary. It's a historical inaccuracy is what became clear talking with Professor Langton. Um, and again, it's that importance of knowing your history. One thing Aboriginal people do know about Australia is the history. And uh, the problem with January 26 as our national day is that it's not even the right day. Um, so why are we celebrating this arbitrary day when um, Lieutenant Arthur Phillip is said to have uh, set up Australia? In fact, let me just point out that... Um, Philip did not even establish the government till February 7. As Collins said, he had been too busy uh, dealing with His Majesty's commissions appointing Commodore Philip Governor-in-Chief over the Territory of New South Wales. So, you know, this is all an invention. January 26 is a po ex post facto invention. It's a, you know, a muddle of ideas, none of which are correct. Australia was actually created by a Westminster Act of Parliament which came into effect on January 1, 1901. So why don't we celebrate on January 1? Well, I asked a group of um, young people in a high school in Arnhem Land after explaining all the facts to them, why wouldn't... Why, why do they think the reasons... What do they think the reasons are for um, not having January 1? as our national day, and they quite rightly pointed out that most Australians would be hung over from their New Year's celebrations. So if that's the... Smart kids. Well, I think they're right. I think they're absolutely right. So if that's the reason, then having January 26 is just arbitrary and it's an insult to Aboriginal people. And I don't think it needs to be said that the idea of Australia needs to be based on... Um, 65,000 years of history and not some muddled concoction from some colonial records. Imagine being a country whose drinking culture is so ingrained and so important that you wouldn't choose to celebrate the national holiday on the correct date because we'd all be too hungover. Who the bloody hell are we? <laughs> Now, what surprised me right at the end of our yarn was Marsha with the big reveal that she was more abolish the date than change the date. Well, at least up to a point. Now, remember that Professor Langton is a government-appointed co-chair of the senior advisory group that's assisting Ken Wyatt, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, towards achieving the co-designed voice to government. So she had to be careful, but... Here we have Marsha taking a stand that verges on this sort of radicalism similar to that expressed by the warrior of Aboriginal resistance mob uh, over the past couple of years where they've been advocating for abolish the date. But Marsha is looking, well, as you'll hear right now, she's not ready to come to the table until Aboriginal people are recognising the constitution. And that our national day should uh, be inclusive and, you know, give us something to be proud of mm. um, as Australians. 
But as I say, I'm not in favour of uh, considering these matters until there's a satisfactory constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, over the course, as you heard, um, Marsh also pointed out there was a few other dates that were more apt at being the designated National Day. Of course, you said January 1, 1901, when the colonies became federated as the, Chemo- as the Commonwealth of Australia. But she also gave me July 9, 1900, when Queen Victoria gave her royal assent to the Australian Constitution. And you'd think that the monarchists and a good chunk of the conservatives would go for that one, wouldn't you? Uh, There's also May 9, when the Australian Parliament first sat in 1901. Yeah, and there's also been several names for Australia Day. There was Imperial Day, for example. And of course, as we all know now, it only became a national event on the January 26th day as recently as 1994. But back in 1938, it was a date for Aboriginal people as a day of mourning, January 26 was. And then in 1988, that was the date of the first Invasion Day rally in Sydney. In 1992, it was the first Survival Day event also held in Sydney. So January 26 has historically been a day of protest and mourning for Aboriginal people for longer than it has been a national holiday for all of Australia. The discrepancy over the most appropriate date is where a lot of the counter-narrative writing on the topic of Australia Day dwelt in the early part of the last decade, when more black voices began to emerge in more mainstream publications. But as the spectacle and controversy escalated with each year, so too did the demands on these black writers and commentators to produce columns and provide fresh takes on the topic. Which brings us to Take It Black's feature interview for episode one, where I got to talk with one of my favourite writers, Celeste Little. Celeste was one of the very first of the new media black writers to gain mainstream prominence, and she's still producing fire that burns as brightly as those columns she filed at the very beginning, especially when it comes to the topic of Jan 26. But Ray, I can tell you from my own experience that it begins to take a toll. Last year... I swore I would, I'd written my last January 26 column, but they've pulled me back in again. I was going to say, how year. did that go for you? <laughs> I was up last night doing it all again. Now, I recall two or three years ago that Celeste made a post on her Facebook page, uh, which is called Black Feminist Ranter, that she was done at that point as well. But despite that, Celeste is doing it again this year as well. She's going around again. So I called her up and I, I asked her if we could have a chat about the burden of expectations and demands that are placed on black writers by predominantly white media outlets that are still struggling to understand what mob are saying. Every year, black writers get approached by news organisations to produce a January 26 piece. Uh, you've probably been writing these for longer than any other black writer at this point and I just want you to share with us the experience of being approached year after year to come up with something for January 26. Well and I'm not even sure how it all started that I would um, that I've become one of the longest ones who's been approached for it it's been such a 
bizarre process but um yeah you know it, it kind of initially sort of would seem to start um oh we'd get those inevitable ads from the from the um is it meat and livestock association so the eat lamb ads and it'd be responding to those and then um you know, as as our protests seem to grow more and more, it um, seem to be the approaches about um, about the the rally itself and what it was that we were actually protesting about, but um, and why Australia Day was so offensive. But but the problem has been, I've noticed every single year, I've essentially been writing the exact same article over and over again, and that same article. Um, is pretty much highlighting to a group of people once again why it is that we we protest on the 26th of January, why it is that um, that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people take offence at this um, reinforcement of of nationalism and that whole sort of um, I don't know that that cringeworthy show of um, Australian flag capes and that and and also a lot of the time defending our mobs. So um, having to write stuff that um, constantly that that highlights, you know, the sorts of things that we – or sorry, that, that reinforces the sorts of things that we say at our protests and, and why it's important and why it is that people shouldn't be demonising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for getting out on the streets and um, continuing the long legacy of protest on the 26th. Have we – advanced by any degree in the say well almost a decade now that we've been producing these op-eds and commentaries and articles and going on panels and radio um has anybody actually been listening um i'm gonna sound really cynical (laughs) i really am but but i don't think it's advanced a hell of a lot i think that um that you know, every year, again, the same approach will be made. Um, can you write a piece saying why it is that you're protesting, um, what's so offensive or reacting to this latest um, racist statement by some politician or whatever else? So that's that's a continual. Um, you know, if anything, I've seen a, a bit of a backlash. So I remember last year in particular, for example, um, I think, you know, apart from Indigenous media and the sorts of things that um, our commentators were writing, I only saw one media organisation put out a report that looked anything like, for example, the the Melbourne rally um, and what was going on. And that um, that was that reporter who wrote that um, piece for a mainstream media source was actually on the ground, was listening to the speeches and was accurately reporting them as they unfolded. Um, mostly, you know, I still see, even though um, our numbers are growing and even though um, social media has been playing an incredibly important part in in getting the alternate message out and getting the numbers there and getting mainstream Australians a little bit more knowledgeable about why we're out on the streets. Um, yeah, more than anything, I see almost like a backlash um I see the under-reporting of our rally numbers continuously so 
I think I wrote my first piece about the gross underreporting of numbers three years ago and I've followed that up with two pieces since. Um, I've seen the skewing of the message of the messages. So one of our um, one of our speakers, uh, a young activist, was actively demonised for saying "fuck Australia, burn it to the ground," and the media ran with that. Um, as a bid, I can only see to discredit why a bunch of people were on the um, streets. So, so we end up. Um, I I don't think it's progressed in the way that we end up having to fight against what the media constructs in the meantime in the 12 intervening months um, leading up to the next rally. We end up having to fight against those very same things over and over and the only way that it does progress is when we start using our alternate channels. Just to get back to having to produce a piece every year, it's more than that though, isn't it? It's You're producing your written piece for that year, your annual written piece, but then you're getting requests from all of the other mainstream or big media outlets to produce for them as well, whether it be a radio interview, um, a, radio, a, a television panel, um, or three or four more articles um, coming at it from a, a new angle. What sort of toll does that take on the individual writer? I, I think it takes a huge toll. Um, you know, even if we weren't talking emotional toll, because the the emotional um, toll of of reinforcing um, reinforcing our sovereignty over and over again, our importance, our knowledges, you know, over and over again, and proving. I'm oh, sorry, trying to prove to people who who basically haven't really cared um, why it is that our fights are important um, and what we hope to achieve with them. Um, if you take that emotional toll out of it for a second, the, the, the sheer ask on time of any um, Aboriginal commentator and indeed um, key activist um, is just extraordinary. And... Um, that time is mainly, apart from a couple of written pieces, is mainly expected to be freely given. So you're expected to freely give your knowledge and your experience to white organisations over and over again without any form of compensation. And that um, you're expected to drop everything to do it. Um, yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement of of what what that plays and I know that um, I know that a lot of commentators and activists get to the end of um, yet another invasion day and just fall in a heap or go bush because they've been you know they've had people ringing them constantly at any time expecting them to get up and give the message at six o'clock and then do it again at 11 o'clock at night on some tv program um, yeah it's it's quite crazy what are you going to be doing on January 26th this year, 2020, celebration of 250 years since Captain Cook. Oh yeah, and to, I, I call it um, 250 years since since the beginning of the myth of Terra Nullius. Not not the declaration. There was no formal declaration, but you know that's a pretty significant um, anniversary. The claiming of a land for an empire. Um, <laughs> in order to then set up a penal colony 18 years later. So, so yeah, I'll be protesting. I'll be at the Invasion Day protest. Um, and 
you know, hopefully helping in every way I can to ensure that the people organising or the core organising group uh, um, have everything they need and are supported. Um, I'll probably be going for a beer afterwards. That seems to also be the tradition because after going through that, there's always the need to unplug. But I'll be... I'll be trying to get that message out about the fact that we are still 250 years down the track still trying to educate the broader Australian public on on our existence, our knowledges. I think our knowledges, when we see bushfire haze everywhere, are particularly prominent right now and the importance of them, of our history, the fact that history didn't just exist, you know, didn't just um, rather start when... when white people landed and um and started recording their own um yeah I'll be I'll be trying to use that message in order to to really sort of push for a reconfiguration of how we understand this land um 250 years down the track and how many requests have you had to write something or appear somewhere apart from this one? <laughs> um, at this stage, I think it's three to write and um, and probably two two um, sort of recorded podcasty radio things. Um, it's early days yet, though. <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens in the next week. Usually, usually when it comes to the few days before it. Yeah, it really does ramp up. Um, and as a as a keen avoider of certain forms of media, <laughs> I'm sure that they'll still come through. Thanks, Celeste. And Ray, I think it's fair to say that both you and I are hearing exactly what Celeste is saying. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a science and technology writer and I've been approached by five different outlets to write something about my personal thoughts on January 26. And is this something that happens each year for you? Yeah, every year for me. And you know, sometimes even by the organisation that I'm working for full-time as someone that writes about video games. They're like, oh, you're you're here. Uh, why don't you write something up about this? And they they ask without fully understanding what it is that they're asking of you. They don't know what the impact is going to be. They don't know what kind of trauma it inflicts on you to be able to do this again and again. And then the backlash that you're going to receive on social media afterwards. Well, we've seen it with Brooke Boney. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a that's a classic case of you know, someone being asked to comment on something that's outside their job description. You know, she's there as the entertainment reporter. Let her be the entertainment reporter. She's a good one. And they don't want to hear it at any other time of the year, which is worth pointing out as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the most frustrating things. You know, you, you see all these publications doing call-outs for black writers at this specific time of the year with a very short lead time and you know, you're kind of saying what about the rest of it and what about on other topics other than just you know this particular day of the year or you know things about identity or you know whatever major aboriginal figure has done something this time like let us write about the things that we have expertise in let us really shine well, that's it for our January 26 Always Was, Always Will Be episode. The very first Take It Black. Ray, I'll be seeing you at the vigil on Saturday night. Well, I hope so. Otherwise, I'll be hosting it by myself. You might be doing that anyway. No, you've got to come along. <laughs> and thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Take It Black, a podcast from the team here at NITV News Online. 
Please remember to subscribe to the show via your preferred podcast app. And join us on Twitter by throwing us a follow firstly and then dropping in a hashtag, take it black, wherever you can find a fit for it. This podcast was mixed down by Dan Gallagher, produced by me, Jack Lattimore. And co-hosted by me, Ray Johnston. Join us again in two weeks for the second instalment of Take It Black. Always